Welcome back to Clandestine. I am your host, Tom Secker, coming to you from the grassy knolls of North Yorkshire, and this is episode 24, The Intelligence Industrial Complex. Edward Snowden is one of millions of American civilians granted government security clearances, individuals who support and carry out many of the country's intelligence functions. But it does raise questions over whether too many contractors are now in on the government's secrets. We get that part of the story tonight from NBC's senior investigative correspondent, Lisa Myers. Most of us think intelligence involves spies from the CIA, eavesdropping by the super-secret NSA, and information gathered by the Pentagon. But there's also a huge shadow intelligence community of private contractors, some of them corporations with familiar names. After 9-11, when the government failed to connect the dots, the demand for private intelligence exploded, leading to what a former official called a hiring binge of battalions of young, smart nerds. What once started as a process of augmenting and fighting the war on terrorism has now become an industrial system. It's an industrial system that works on a profit motive. Near the NSA's huge complex in Fort Meade, Maryland, there are now office buildings full of contractors. According to the government, almost 5 million individuals now hold security clearances, 1.4 million of them top secret. One-third are held by private contractors. A check of a jobs website, Monster.com today, showed 796 job openings requiring top secret clearances. The current director of national intelligence, James Clapper, worked for private contractors between government jobs, and his predecessor, Mike McConnell, now works for Booz Allen. Many contractors have intelligence or military experience, but others are 20-something technicians like Edward Snowden. They're not motivated necessarily by patriotism. They're not motivated necessarily by uh, a scar of 9-11. This is a job. While acknowledging the risk, intelligence officials argue that private contractors now are critical, even indispensable. The intelligence agencies tell me that they simply could not function effectively without the personnel, technology, and expertise of these private contractors. A delicate balance with the nation's security at stake. Lisa Myers, NBC News, Washington. For this episode, I was joined by James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and we talked about the privatization of intelligence and the development of the intelligence industrial complex. In this typically wide-ranging conversation, James began by breaking down the different layers in the existing discussion on this topic, and then we looked at the history of private intelligence, how 9-11 turned it into a massive industry, Edward Snowden, anonymous, so-called cyber-terrorism, and much, much more. So, hello James, thank you for coming on Clandestine today, and how are you doing, my friend? I am doing very well, and a warm welcome to you and all of your listeners across the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and around the world, and all who might be tuning in just by accident, I bid you all a fair evening. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that's a very warm, warm welcome of you. <laughs> very verbose. <laughs> Why break the habit of a lifetime? So, <laughs> the topic that, I mean, we, we were batting around a couple of ideas for topics for this show, and you suggested this one, and I think it's a very good topic, the whole uh, subject of private spying and the various things that that implies and entails. And we both have a bit of a, a aversion to brevity, let's say. But could you briefly explain why it is that you picked this topic? I suppose that it's a fascinating topic, and I think that's uh, something that's pretty undeniable insofar as pretty much across the board, insofar as the topic is even acknowledged, it is always acknowledged as something sinister in some way. There's something something uh, somewhat disturbing about it. And I, I think there are four at least four different approaches that I think one could take when when looking at this, um, four ways to skin the cat, as it were. And the first would be the obvious the kind of the mainstream approach that you would find in an expose, quote unquote, like top secret America, the, um, the rather laughable expose that came out from Washington Post a few years ago and was headed by veteran, respectable Beltway insider lapdog journalists, uh, Dana Priest and William Arkin, that basically exposed for the first time because apparently no one else had ever thought of it the fact that uh, a lot of the u.s uh, intelligence apparatus is in this day and age privatized um so i think that would be the first level of analysis and and basically that uh, that uh, top secret america type reporting basically amounts to well look it's there's a lot of private uh, companies working on you know top secret projects isn't that a strange thing basically is is about as far as it goes uh the the next layer i think you would have in the analysis would be the um the sort of foundation funded pseudo alternative media of salon and the nation and democracy now and now the intercept um working on this subject in in one way or another and there there is a, a, quite a lot of good information that comes out of that and some good analysis and some some hard numbers and, and facts and digging that goes on about the the firms that are involved in in uh, the private privatization of intelligence and why we should be uh, suspecting uh, why we should suspect them although i think that the general thrust of that analysis tends to end up um, in a very similar way to what we've talked about before with the old um, intelligence failures canard, which always means that we should, well, we, we just need to fund the intelligence agencies more. The privatization of intelligence um, uh, uh, issue, the way that it's tackled in that alt pseudo alternative media tends to uh, come back to some sort of narrative that, oh, well, what we need is to make it a government thing again and, you know, target the right people. And then then the intelligence agencies will be a good thing once again. Yeah, you're um, right. I think it's fundamentally, you know, good spies versus bad spies. It's the idea that, oh, because they're spies from the corporate world, they must exactly uh, somehow be more sinister or more evil or have worse intentions than the people in the government spying. So what we need is more either more government spying in the sense of they should have a bigger proportion of it or oh, we need a bit of reform or we need a bit more oversight and invariably it's supposed to be the government that's actually doing this. There's never the fundamental questioning of should we be doing any of this at all? That question is just never asked in in those sorts of media. But carry on. Please. Exactly right. And Well, I think you're right. And I think that that goes to one of the, 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 the other points, the third level of analysis that I would bring into this, which is to say that if you understand the history of the intelligence agencies, at least in the American context, I'm certainly no expert on MI5, MI6 or, or some of the other intelligence agencies around the world. But certainly in the American context, if you look at the history of the intelligence agencies, they were born in 
into existence, wedded at the hip with the private uh, corporate interests um, in the first place. And we see that from the biographies of a number of, uh, of people who were key and instrumental in setting up the, the OSS and CIA um, coming from the banking world and, and finance and uh, lawyers for Wall Street, etc., um, so we see that there there was no some sort of, you know, bygone era that we could return to in which the the intelligence agencies would somehow be separated from from the uh, the private interests that have always had a, a founding stake in them. And then I guess the fourth analysis would be to say, well, to what extent is the private corporate se- sector um uh, I mean, the way that it's framed is generally this is the intelligence agencies kind of being taken over by the private sector, whereas I think you could also make a very interesting case that it's the private sector that is being taken over by the intelligence agencies, by which I mean, um, even the existence of, for example, CIA front companies and the like, the extent to which that pervades the economy I, I I think would probably stagger the average person if it were ever to be made public, which of course it will not in the current paradigm. But I think that there's an, a hu- much, much bigger question of to the, the extent to which what we think of as the private sector is in fact the intelligence agencies and, uh, and how much they're puppeteering the economy in that way. And it, it might be kind of a reverse takeover as opposed to the narrative that everyone's thinking about. So those, those are the four ways I think of approaching this. And, and again, no matter what part of that you're coming from, even the mainstream, they all do posit it in a, in a somewhat uh, uh, insidious way. There's something about this that, that unsettles people. It's just the way that it's framed and the way that they choose to talk about it that uh, determines the the sort of thrust of the narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you did. You've done very well there to outline those those four different analyses. You've touched on a lot of the things that I was reflecting on uh, when I was doing a bit of preparation for this. But, I mean, there's several different places we could go with this. I think you're absolutely right that to see these things as fundamentally separate at some point uh, is a delusion. It, it simply isn't borne out by historical reality or present-day reality. Um, in fact, I'd say that the long-term history of spying, which is something that obviously I've devoted <laughs> probably more time to than it was necessarily worth, but looking at the long-term history, private spying, in fact, precedes government spying organizations uh, in terms of their formal existence today. I mean, most of these, most spying that took place before you had things like the CIA and MI5 was being done, I suppose, for governmental purposes to an extent in as much as you had uh, the royal families in Europe in particular. They all had their spying networks, but these people were basically spies for hire. They weren't part of some governmental organization necessarily. They were part of a group of people beholden to what is ultimately a private citizen, a royal. Um, Although, yeah a private citizen that pretends it's a government citizen, but whatever. Or the other purpose for private spying was military, which is mostly done by by governments, but not always. Would you agree, actually, that private spying does precede governmental spying organizations in that way? I will defer to your your um, your research into the history. Uh, I'm I'm not nearly as well researched, but it certainly strikes me, at any rate, from from what I understand, and and even just from a, a kind of a priori analysis, that it would have to have been, I think, preceding the nation state. Obviously, a lot of these would have been kind of the, that spy for hire scenario that you talk about, and certainly every royal 
court, I'm sure, would have its spies. But I would assume that these would be the types of people who would be making their services available to the uh, to the, the powers uh, of the throne and the powers behind the throne as need be on a kind of, uh, uh, what do you say, a cutthroat basis. So it certainly makes sense to me that that's the case, although I don't have a deep understanding of the history of that. Well, I mean, one example that I wanted to throw at you was the story that is probably true um, about Nathan Rothschild exploiting the uh, the war with Napoleon, and in particular the, the culmination of the war, in terms of his private spies getting word back to him of the English or British victory, uh, and thus using that to, what did he do? He sort of short-sold, dumped a load of stock on the market to make it seem like he'd got word or someone had got word that in fact the English had lost, thus causing a uh, what do they call it? A really fast crash. Um, and then when word does actually get back that it is an English victory, by that point he's secretly bought up a load of this cheap stock and thus has made an awful lot of money. And that, you know, he wasn't working strictly for the British government, was he? He was in effect a private citizen at that point, exploiting this through private spying for private gain. No, that's exactly right. And in fact, that brings up, I think, probably the most important angle of this, that it's generally for financial purposes or financial gain that uh, spying would be done. And uh, I think this would be the most obvious example of 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 that in a historical context, even if it is an apocryphal story, which it may very well be. I think certainly things of that sort um, certainly did go on for for for. Well, I'm sure they still do go on. And that brings up, uh, I think, another aspect of an, an under scrutinized aspect of what's going on right now with all of these revelations about the National Security Agency and the way that this information is being used. Kind of the elephant in the room of all of this is how is information that's being collected um, through transmission of communications internationally being used for the the gain of specifically of uh, not just American corporations, but I guess sort of crony corporations of uh, some of the people who are connected to these intelligence agencies. And some of that has come to the surface in stories about, for example, um, Boeing being able to undermine uh, negotiations um, with foreign powers for, for Airbus uh, airplanes um, being exposed exposed as uh, basically being involved in in CIA um, yeah, honey traps that that eventually got uh, scuttled the deal. I'm I'm butchering the story, but you you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, I think that the the financial aspect of spying is something that is often overlooked because it uh, it it's so obvious, it's so completely apparent that the the number one thing that uh, that that information gets you is that comparative advantage in business scenarios and uh, and absolutely something like the shorting of the the British console exchange back in the 18th century or early 19th century at the Battle of Waterloo would have been possible um, with the help and the realization of those um, private spies. And in that case, I mean, uh, we, again, we're trained to think of James Bond type spies or something. But in that case, it was really just uh, supposedly just uh, having faster access to faster um, uh, horses and Corvettes and what have you in kind of a, a communication network that supposedly gave the Rothschilds that comparative advantage. So uh, I think that is a good story for pointing out what what this is really about at the base, which I think is information being used as a leverage towards financial manipulation. Well, actually, I would disagree with you on that. I wouldn't say that's what it's about at base. I would say that is the, if you like, the symptom of what it's what it's about at base, because I think this isn't necessarily about financial gain 
in and of itself for itself as an end it's it's always ultimately about power that anyone who is seeking power and whether that's power over a market or power over people doesn't make a huge amount of difference i don't think not to them i mean it does to us but it doesn't make a huge amount of difference to them um i i will cheerfully accept that uh that correction Uh, i do agree with what you're saying i think that uh what i'm trying to say is that it it is the first and most easiest way to manifest that power is through Mm. economic um concerns but yes i don't think that at base that's what it's about so you're right um because i think anyone who who seeks power or is trying to maintain their power or is really ultimately trying to do anything on a large scale needs information for this i don't think you could ever hope to be successful in that sort of endeavor uh, without some kind of informational advantage over the people that you're competing with. And whether those people are rival traders on the stock exchange or whether those people are ordinary citizens in a country, again, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference to them. Um, So I suppose another question that comes out of this is, do you think that private spies can have a competitive advantage over government spies? Can they do things that government spies can't do? Well, at any rate, they certainly could be used as another layer of of plausible deniability when it comes to various operations. If they're ever discovered, of course, you could say, well, that's the subcontractor. We didn't authorize that. That wasn't what we were trying to do. So obviously it's their fault and they could be they could take the blame for it. So I think that 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 gives another kind of layer, a buffer layer between the people who are organizing the operations and the operations themselves, which is always handy in the intelligence world Um, in terms of whether or not uh, corporations can 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 really do things that the government can't. I, I'm not sure that that's that's necessarily the case. Um, but certainly, it it gives a sort of organizational leeway that uh, that that doesn't exist in in a very rigidly defined bureaucracy like what you see again. And uh, I'll I'll use the U.S. context as the example because again, the the uh, the the intelligence community is just absolutely a maze of overlapping, interlocking organizations, and there are all sorts of rules about what. Operations have to be uh, taken, undertaken by which agency and under what kind of protocols and rules of engagement and what information they can share, etc. And again, companies can, at at, the, at at any rate, skirt some of those rules um, insofar as they they are not beholden to that bureaucracy. So I think it gives them sort of an organizational um, uh, versatility that uh, that doesn't exist within the the bureaucracy of the the intelligence community, and uh, I think that's probably part of the appeal. Um, but again, I think there's essentially there's a, a large financial concern here because uh, again, um, uh, private companies tend to get paid more for the the same intelligence work as as uh, regular contractors, and that that's been revealed in recent years. Um, since 2007, we've learned quite a bit uh, uh, with some independent researchers like Tim Shorrock and others digging up some of the documents that show, for example, that now 70 percent of the intelligence budget of the United States goes to private companies, um, which is a staggering figure. And when you actually break down the numbers, you find that uh, that on average, people doing classified work for private companies make, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, um, of double the amount that uh, that 
actual government workers make for it. So from a uh, from a cost saving perspective, which I'm sure is the way that this is sold in uh, inside the Beltway, of course, it's uh, it's completely the opposite. It uh, it actually is a money losing operation. But then again, I don't think that the people who are in positions of um, of being able to to implement these programs really care about how they're using this taxpayer money, which in the end is really just created out of no- nothing by the banks anyway. Well, there is that dimension to it. Yeah, I don't think they have any sense of particular responsibility for spending this money. But, I mean, you're absolutely right. You Just to, to restate that, 70% of the US intelligence budget ultimately goes to private companies. And this partly and largely explains why the private intelligence market in the US is worth something like 50 or $60 billion a year. Which, if you think about it, in intelligence terms, given how much it actually costs to do intelligence, which isn't that much, practically speaking, to do $50 billion worth of private intelligence gathering and analysis, that's a hell of a lot of work. That's a huge chunk of the economy. To go back to what you were saying before about this being a sort of reverse takeover, this being another way in which the, particularly in the US, the federal government is just kind of cutting into more and more bits of the economy and involving itself and making more and more bits of the economy dependent on that federal government. I I think you're right that that is very much part of what's going on here. And that's partly why they don't care that, you know, the CIA doesn't care that they're paying twice as much to the staff. And on top of that, these private companies have got to make a profit anyway. So they must be paying far more for the same work than they would do by hiring their own internal people. But they don't care about that because that's not what this is about. You're right. This isn't about efficiency or saving money or the private sector being able to do these things better. And maybe it can, but it's not about that. It's about can we use the privatization of intelligence analysis in particular, but also intelligence gathering as another means to involve ourselves in the economy and as another way of, yeah, instilling our power. Uh, into that economy, so it becomes more dependent on us. Do you think that? And, and I think I think the obvious. Uh, l- let me just interject. I think the obvious analogy of what we're looking at here would be the military-industrial con- con- uh, complex, which, of course, was identified and and was forming most most obviously in in around the middle of the 20th century when it was really coming into into view in the way that we understand it today, with the types of military contractors that have obviously just grown in in their strength and uh, and and size based on the back of you know the 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 growing American empire and the projection of military force around the world. And I think it's no, I mean, it's not just an analogy. I think it's actually part of that same same phenomenon um, that we have the rise of the intelligence industrial complex that is largely being populated by a lot of the same types of contractors who are part of that military industrial contract uh, com- complex. So you have um, companies like um, Naris, which provides the, uh, the 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 devices that help to analyze uh, emails in the uh, in prison program and the splitting off of the the internet in the trunks at uh, the AT and T um, back doors that Mark Klein blew the whistle on in 2006, um, that are capable of um, it, analyzing up to 100 billion 1,000 character emails every day, uh, just a staggering sum. Uh, that uh, that technology is provided by Naris, which is a subsidiary of Boeing. Um, you have uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, obviously, um, the uh, subcontractor of the NSA that was the employer of uh, Edward Snowden. 
or we are led to believe, um, the snow job that you have been admirably covering in previous editions of this podcast, I must say. Um, that, uh, of course, is a, is a primarily a government uh, consulting agency that's, that's uh, worked heavily with uh, the government for a long time before the rise of this intelligence industrial complex. You have SAIC, uh, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, CACI International. A lot of the, the types of uh, contractors that are very familiar in that other context of the military industrial complex. Here we just have the intelligence industrial complex. I think it's really literally an outgrowth of that. And I think that uh, 9-11 obviously provided a kind of um, flipping of the switch moment. I think that it was already happening before 9-11, but I think that that certainly kicked things off um, in into a higher gear of the changeover of that old system where um, force is not being projected militarily as much. Um, there is not as much, um, uh, I, I guess, need for the... Um, for the, the 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 kind of gadgets and and uh, and uh, military hardware that has uh, certainly taken up so much of the the American uh, economy and American budget over the last several decades, you can only justify that so much when invading a country like Afghanistan. Um, at a certain point, I, I think that the next level of this has to be the kind of takeover of the the cybersphere as a as just the next level of of uh, raping of the economy in that sense. And of, of course, it it has all of those those adjunct um, th that we talked about, all those 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 other properties of being able to provide more and more of the takeover of the, the economy generally and more and more power accruing in smaller and smaller hands. So it works out for the, the very few crony corporations that are at the very tip of this sphere. Spear. Well, you've just hit on uh, about half a dozen different things that I wanted to pick apart in a little bit more detail. So very well done, James. Uh, but, okay, the first one, I suppose, is uh, the revolving door. You're right that um, I was conceiving this primarily as the revolving door between the private intelligence agencies and the governmental intelligence agencies. When you look at the people who, you know, work for these, almost all of the private contractors have at some point been government agents or officials of some kind. And you find this obviously in banking. You find this in the military industrial complex as well. You certainly find it in the private intelligence uh, industrial complex. But you're right, you hit upon a way in which there's a kind of, uh, if you like, a three-dimensional revolving door to this, that you have people going from, you know, CIA to private military contractor to private intelligence contractor, and then maybe back into the CIA or NSA or someone. <clears throat> and so, if you like, these people have always got a job waiting for them somewhere. It's all very good for them. So, of course, when they, say, perhaps get back into the government agency, they might, may even be involved in making a decision as to whether something should be privatized or who should get the contract for it and who are they going to pick. Well, they're going to pick the same people who will give them a job when they get out of that government agency three years down the line. So that's all going on here. That is certainly worth paying attention to and worth understanding, but I think the core of that revolving door issue and question and certainly the parallel that you drew between the military industrial complex and the intelligence industrial complex is that it makes these things permanent parts of the economy because that was the fundamental change around World War II was that you started getting a large-scale permanent arms manufacturing industry. You got permanent intelligence institutions and agencies within government. You got a permanent Department of Defense or Ministry of Defense in this country. It all became... Whereas previously it was mostly done on an ad hoc basis, these things were kind of brought together as and when they were needed, particularly when it came to raising an army. 
Um, now they are just perpetual. They are there regardless of whether we're at war or not at war. I mean, I know we're always at war, it seems, but well, we are. Um, but you know what I'm saying here? That that was the fact. No, I, I certainly do. Exactly right. And, and and we see exactly how this is being hardwired into the military in infrastructure um, and the intelligence infrastructure through the codification of the idea of cyber warfare um, and the creation of, of in military posts for cyber warfare. And now the buildup of the, 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 uh, the, the private contractors who are um, going to be relied on to, to be a part of that uh, cyber, cyber uh, warfare capability um, and we see the kind of changeover that that's been noted even by mainstream publications like wired and others um, for a number of years now that we've seen this this kind of changeover in the military contractors towards more and more this cyber fighting capability and of course this is all centering around uh, the the kind of information warfare dominance that of course is the bread and butter of the intelligence field so i think we're starting to see really the merger of the intelligence and military functions in a lot of ways and perhaps that speaks to what we've seen not only with, I guess, the CIA becoming more like the military, which um, it has in recent years by taking over, for example, the drone program and and uh, so that they can basically say that they're not at war with a country like Yemen where they're doing these uh, drone raids. It's it's the CIA. It's an intelligence mission. And then you also have the kind of intelligenceization, if you will, of the military um, functions with, with uh, organizations like JSOC being able to commit special operations in a country and say, well, it's not, it's not the intelligence, uh, it's not an intelligence operation, it's a military operation. So it kind of it starts to blur the lines between the two. And uh, you think you're exactly right, it starts to hardwire in that, uh, that infrastructure, which is, I mean, it used to be the, the war fighting, the physical fighting capability, it's now termed uh, cyber warfare, but it's, it amounts to the same thing. It's the, uh, a very few corporations that get to profit to an exceptional degree uh, on the back of this supposed boogeyman. And I guess that's why I think I'm particularly nervous about the possibility of a cyber Pearl Harbor um, event to really justify this in the same way that Pearl Harbor was obviously used to justify the U.S. in, in, re, in, in entry into World War II. Yeah, sure. I mean, we'll return to the whole cyber warfare, cyber terrorism aspect of that, this in a minute. But to pick up on something else you, you said... Uh, how 9-11 in particular was one of the trigger events that really expanded this whole private intellig intelligence market. The, the whole, that's where an awful lot of these corporations came from. But I was looking at this, um, I basically just went through a list of all of the big name private intelligence firms that I could find and looked up what year were they founded in, just as a, to try and get a sort of basic pattern of the history of these things. And I found three separate clusters there's one in the sort of early mid 1970s. There's one in the mid late 1990s, and the other one is after 9/11. That's <clears throat> I, I can understand the latter two. I can understand why after the Cold War, when people were starting to ask that question, well, what are these intelligence agencies for anymore if we're no longer battling the KGB and we're no longer battling the great Soviet threat? That question was at least being asked a bit at that point. So I can see why some of these spies thought maybe the writing's on the wall, let's go and set up our own private thing and, you know, start selling information to private corporations and making our living that way. So I can see why there was a bit of a boost in the 1990s. Obviously, I can see why there was a huge boost to this economy and market and, and, these, and the number and size of these companies after 9-11. But what was going on in the 1970s? That's what I can't figure out. Have you got any 
any thoughts on the particular context why there would be a somewhat a spike in growth in the 19 sort of early mid 1970s it's a good question and i don't think i could provide anything other than sort of a speculative answer and i'm not even sure i'd have a particularly convincing one off the top of my head it brings to my mind the question of what what particular um firms you're looking at in terms of that 1970s spike uh, well, particularly American firms. I didn't notice the same thing happening with British firms. I mean, is, is Watergate part of this, potentially? Watergate is a kind of similar atmosphere to what's going on now with Edward Snowden and all of that. Am I? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Well, a, again, that was kind of a, uh, even by the official story, a group that was uh, not exactly um, part of the intelligence community per se. It was kind of, you know, the plumbers the doing uh, odd jobs for the president on the side kind of thing, which certainly does raise the, the question. Um, I, again, I can't think in the 1970s context what would specifically be part of that. But uh, when I think of that, what comes to mind is uh, sort of, the, again, some of the banking aspects of this, that, um, including things like the Nugan Hand Bank in Australia and uh, and uh, the creation of BCCI and and that network, I, I start to think along those lines. But again, that's moving more into the 1980s. So um, so no, I'm not really sure what would be the 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 impetus for that in the 1970s. Perhaps other than um, just the the kind of turnover that was happening as a result of the the generation that had created the. The, the the infrastructure for that permanent military basis in the, the World War II scenario kind of turning over. And uh, I think a younger generation starting to see the the, uh, the possibility of doing the same thing in the intelligence. But again, that's complete speculation and I wouldn't have any particular um, um, basis for that. No, but I think it's a it's a reasonable speculation to make. It's certainly one that is kind of coherent. It makes some sense, if nothing else. Um, the exception to this uh, sort of these three different clusters that I saw. Well, one of the exceptions is Booz Allen Hamilton, who you mentioned before, because they go back, way, way back to 1914. They started out as, like you say, a management consultancy agency. They weren't really a private intelligence firm at that time. Um, so, yeah, obviously there you have the, the context of World War One, but yeah, they were management consultancy rather than intelligence, so I don't think we should necessarily make too much of a connection out of that but now they're they're a huge corporation i was looking at their numbers they turn over nearly six billion dollars a year um as a management consultancy firm <laughs> how can you right and i believe i i believe i saw a figure recently 98 or 99 percent of that comes from government contracts i might might have made that a mistake on that but i, I that that was the number that i saw recently i mean that's absurd isn't it how can you do six billion dollars worth of management consultancy um <laughs> well, you charge a lot for everything you do. That would be one way of doing it. Well, that is management consultancy. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. just sort of what the industry is. But I, I was, I was just kind of staggered by this when I first saw that number. I thought, whenever I look at these numbers, I just think, what are these people actually doing? What are they? What are they spending their time doing that they think they, they've managed to sell the government on the idea that this is worth several billion dollars? But yeah, like you 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 uh, pointed out, they're also the former employers so we know, so we're told, of uh, Edward Snowden. And they have been fingered as possible conspirators behind this whole Snowden leak, if we understand Snowden as some kind of false flag operative, or himself potentially as a spy for hire. But what would be the motive behind this? Because we've discussed this a bit in um, our roundtables with Guillermo, and you've touched upon this in your BFP stuff as well. I mean, what would the idea behind if you like, Booz Allen Hamilton 
getting Snowden or helping Snowden into a position where a load of documents could be stolen and then drip fed to the public. Is there, I mean, what, what would you, I suppose you'd have to speculate again, but what, what's your, yeah. Along? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure that's the, the, the narrative that I would think is the most likely. I don't think that, well, I personally don't believe that, that Booz Allen would have had a role in that. If that's, if that's the way that it went down, I, I think that more, it was more likely that, uh, that, um, Snowden and whoever was handling him got him into that position rather than, uh, than, uh, than Booz Allen sort of allowing him into that position. Um, I, I, again, I, I, I mean, there are a million different reasons that, um, a, a company like Booz Allen could potentially have for, for participating in something like that. Um, but again, I, I mean, it's just, there's so many different unknowns there that it's difficult to, to even begin speculating. Um, but I, I would say that on the, I mean, if we could just use this as a jumping off point for the snow job, um, operation, um, it, it, I think that this goes to the heart of what I think is so completely offensive about the, uh, the reporting quote unquote of the intercept and, and Greenwald and, and others on the Snowden story and uh, and really the the public's complete acceptance of it is that self-evidently one of the things that is not being reported on this is the 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 kind of private aspects the 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 corporate aspects of the spying that's going on right now that we've seen very little along those lines and especially considering of course when we start to look into the omidyar network which again is not just tangentially not just kind of casually related but it seems to be at really at the in the thick of and at the heart of this this problem that we're discussing right now um and for those who don't know of course pierre omidyar is the billionaire investor um in the intercept and who uh, hired Greenwald and Scahill and the like to to report on the Snowden operation, and uh, and and the Omidyar network is intimately connected with, for example, um, is a co-investor with uh, Incutel um, and Booz Allen Hamilton in a group called uh, Inicentive. Um, the, it's also connected to the the Palantir technology, which um, originated from. PayPal systems, um, Palantir being basically a, uh, a, a, a type of software that that supposedly analyzes and data mines unstructured data and looks for connections as a as a way of trying to identify fraud. Um, this is something that was uh, invested in by Incutel, but was apparently developed from PayPal um, fraudulent activity software. Which, uh, again, for people who don't know, Omidyar is the the executive of eBay, which owns PayPal. So again, another layer of connection here. Um, we see the same group swirling around here: Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, uh, Palantir, uh, the, uh, the NSA, um, Incutel, all swirling in this mixture. And now, um, supposedly, of course, it's Omidyar who's funding the Intercept and the work they're doing. And uh, I think the most egregious part of this equation is that the public has been so completely uncurious about this connection and about uh, uh, Greenwald's apparent uh, uh, happiness with that uh, sanguineness with that connection and unwillingness to report on it. I mean, if even if there was nothing untoward going here, going on here, I think the fact that this has not been openly addressed is is worrying enough. And especially as we know, with all of the the types of underhanded deals that go on in the intelligence world, I mean, anyone who's approaching this without a skeptical glance is, I mean, just staggeringly naive. Uh, yes, well, I'd certainly agree with you on that point. Um, in fact, I'd agree with pretty much everything you just said. Uh, yeah, and uh, the one thing I would add to that is that the the 
the name that is that seems to never ever ever turn up really in any serious way in the coverage of the snowden thing is that of the cia because they are implied in in quite a lot of these companies that you mentioned they've either they're either firms that are the cia investment firm in that particular part of the economy or at least they are companies with people that have some kind of cia association so they're the ones that i've I've always suspected them being as being the ones pulling the strings behind the Snowden thing. And so the fact that they are the sort of the fact that Snowden was CIA before he was NSA is usually glossed over. The fact that the CIA are in the background of this whole Omidyar network and the the various other companies that you could circle around in that particular Venn diagram. I, I think, yeah. There is something deeply suspicious about the way that that story has not been just faced up to by the people talking about the Snowden story and and people who are heroizing Greenwald. But in particular, it is the, the absence of the name of the CIA that bothers me because they would be the ones, to my mind, to have the most to gain from all of this and also would be the ones in the best position to be pulling off something like this. So... You're exactly right about that. And I think that goes to the heart of the problem that uh, that I raised as that fourth way of looking at this problem, the idea that it's not the the private companies that are taking over the intelligence field. It's the intelligence agencies that are taking over the private corporate world. And that's kind of the big question mark in this equation, because, of course, we have no direct access to to knowledge about that. I mean, this is war by deception by people and 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 agencies that are there to lie to the public specifically. And uh, and it brings up the question of CIA front companies and to what extent are CIA fronts actually you know, operating in the business world and when and how do we ever discover that? And I did a whole series on, for example, Brewster Jennings as a uh, CIA front company um, that was exposed. Um, and the, the story of that exposure is is interesting in and of itself. But I mean, it just raises the question of how many of these companies are operating around the world that are really just fronts for intelligence operatives to be uh, working in different company in different countries. And uh, and of course, if, I mean, although this wouldn't be part of the official story, but in in the United States itself for the CIA or in in Britain for British intelligence, etc., um, it does. It, it's such a, a complete uh, opaque thing for for people at, at the level of you and I. We can only speculate about this until it's confirmed, you know, usually years or decades after the fact. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of the really frustrating things about this is that organizations like the CIA could have their hands all over this and we might never know about it or we might not know about it for for years or decades after the fact. And we're left here speculating about it because, again, we don't have access to this information because specifically this is what they're here to do. They're here to lie to us about what they're involved in and how they're involved. So that puts the public at such an incredible disadvantage that, to my mind, that has to be the heart of reporting about the intelligence world in general is that it is. It is the rot. It's not that privatization of this is the problem. It's not that, oh, we've targeted some of the wrong people or some bad apples got into the mixture. It's that this is poison that has been sold to the public under the guise, of course, of the national security state. And, of course, in the U.S. context, in the in the uh, the National Security Act of 1947 that started to solidify this and and do that changeover from wartime specialized intelligence quote unquote, into that permanent intelligence infrastructure of the CIA and other such organizations. 
friends. And uh, and that that is that is the poison. That's when the poison sets in. And from that point on, literally anything can be done to the public in the name of national security by these uh, intelligence organizations without the public ever even knowing about it. And uh, and to my mind, that is that is completely unacceptable. The idea that that can exist and that people would be sanguine with that, because even if the, uh, the there were only noble people who were directing this in the interest of national security, however, that's defined, I would still be uncomfortable with that idea. And uh, I think any time. Uh, a, a country allows that to happen anytime an, a, a nation or a people allow that to happen. They've already lost the battle um, in a lot of key ways, which is why any reporting on this subject that doesn't question the existence of intelligence agencies itself and the need for them is, to my mind, just, again, hopelessly naive. <laughs> well, yeah, now, now you're talking my language, James, very much so. Um well, let me throw one of my speculations at you, since you are understandably a little reluctant to speculate about quite what this would be, uh, the purpose of this would be. But it did occur to me that regardless of whether we would be discussing Booz Allen Hamilton or the Omidya Network or the CIA as potential ringleaders and uh, orchestrators of the Snowden thing, they would all have the potential motive of, if you like, bringing down the NSA either in a total sense or just in a bit by bit partial sense in order that they could kind of market themselves as its replacement. The CIA would have that motive. And of course the CIA did help make enemy of the state, which is the classic anti NSA. How bad are the NSA? The NSA are so horrible kind of movie. Um, and this is in fact, this is the NSA's entire reputation and depiction in, in uh, entertainment, in entertainment fiction is that they are the bad guys. Whereas the CIA have a much, much more ambiguous and sometimes even heroic portrayal in these sorts of things. So what would you make of that? That that's a potential motive for someone to be doing the Snowden thing is as a way of damaging the NSA so that they can, if you like, take over its functions. Right. And that's the most commonly uh, put forward speculation along those lines that I've heard. And I think it it's certainly plausible and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that turned out to be the case. Um, it could even be something more specific. I mean, it could be some uh, something bureaucratic like a, a General Keith Alexander having made enemies of the wrong people. And uh, this being an attempt to sort of unseat him or make him uncomfortable in his uh, shoes, which would also go some ways towards explaining, again, some of the bad press that uh, that has emerged uh, in the NSA in recent months, including even the humorous slash uh, ridiculous story about the, uh, the the Star Trek Enterprise captain's chair command bridge uh, room that he had created in the NSA, which, again, somehow leaked out. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that have been coming out about the NSA that, again, we don't hear anything of the sort coming out about the CIA. So it certainly is very plausible that this is something to do with the NSA or, or some bureaucratic turf war between uh, people like Alexander and others. Um, and I would, again, I would not be surprised in the least if that's what it is. But again, I mean, could that could that be a, a cover for something else that's happening? It certainly could be. I mean, again, we just get caught kind of chasing our own tail and uh, and wondering, um, uh, speculating in, in all sorts of ways that, uh, that again, perhaps that's, the, that's what we're supposed to speculate about. And this can get all very meta and meta-meta analysis. And that's that's why I think that the speculation is is particularly uncomfortable in this field because I think to a certain extent 
once they have us speculating and 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 trying to put those dots together in you know uh, in a Hardy Boys type fashion, <laughs> that's I think that's part of the allure of the intelligence world in general, isn't it? I mean, that's why people want to become spies in the first place because it's always the question of oh well now you can be on the inside and you can see how this is really done. You're you're above. You're special. And I think that when we start you know, from the bottom up, looking at these these towering intelligence agencies trying to do that, to a certain extent, we start to become them. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Does that mean we shouldn't speculate about these things? Or again, should it be that we should be more focused on the abolition of this in general, rather than, you know, trying to to um, parse out the 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 vagaries of bureaucratic turf wars between you know various agencies i I, again i'm not sure i have a satisfying answer to that but it's just that there's so much that we don't know there's so much that's being withheld that that as as plausible as what you posited is something completely different could be in fact the case and uh, and everything just looks from our perspective like it's the cia battling the nsa so I, I again i have no no basis for saying how close or far away from reality that is and that's what i find particularly frustrating about this that there isn't very much way into this story other than what we're getting from this so-called whistleblower who may not even be a whistleblower. And uh, and this just creates the the layers upon layers of of onion like obfuscation uh, in this this type of story that goes, again, I think, to the heart of what intelligence agencies are and why, again, I think they're such a rot at the core of society, because, again, they they allow for this type of this this very type of system to be created whereby again the average person knows almost nothing and can can be completely fooled but just because all we have to go on is what gets into the public domain and who knows how much of that iceberg is lying underneath the surface well speaking of what gets into the public domain one of the other things i did actually want to run by you and again you may have to speculate a little about this um was that these private intelligence companies have, of course, been targeted by hacktivists, what are called cyber terrorists, but what call themselves hacktivists. I just think they're hackers, really. Um, I would point you to, I mean, I'm sure you already know about this, but pointing the listeners to Operation Antisec, which was in the second half of 2011, this series of hacking attacks by Lulzek and Anonymous, and they were targeting, among others, Booz Allen Hamilton, and then out of that, we also got the Stratfor email leak in uh, 2012, 2013. I mean, they have been themselves targeted for snow jobs, if you like. Um, what would you make of all of this? Because I'd, again, I'll just throw my speculation at you. I think that to a certain extent, this may be the private in, uh, intelligence corporations helping to create the cyber terrorist hacker threat in order that they can, if you like, generate another market for themselves. And they are, of course, encouraged to do this by the intelligence agencies, because it means the intelligence agencies have yet another bit of the market that they can corner. Do you think that's what's going on? Or do you interpret uh, these targeting, these hacking uh, attacks on these private intelligence companies somewhat differently to that? Well, I mean, we, yeah, I can, if you want some speculation, I can uh, put a further layer of speculation on what you've just said. Not only could that be the case of what you just said, but perhaps, again, this is um, one 
intelligence, a private intelligence company or a, a group of them teaming up against another group or, or another intelligence agency? Because what would a war between these these various intelligence agencies look like other than some sort of intelligence operation? So you might have conceivably have something like a, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever, a Booz Allen or, or what have you um, targeting a, a, something like a Stratfor. I don't think that, again, those particular players would be the, the operative players in a case like that. But at any rate, you get the idea that perhaps these groups are being created by the private intelligence themselves, not only to bolster the market for their services, as you say, but also, again, to take out competition, which I think is probably another layer of uh, speculation we could add there. And I think that's, again, perfectly plausible. I think the least likely scenario in all of this is that the anti-sec and lulsec and uh, all of these uh, anonymous operations are, in fact, spontaneous groups of of hacktivists who are doing this for the good of humanity. Again, I'm exceptionally uh, skeptical about that possibility because uh, because we know that uh, that um, I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but however many percentage of uh, of uh, hackers have said they have been approached by by the intelligence services of one form or another, and one would assume that would be the case. I mean, one would assume that a lot of intelligence interest would be in that movement right now and trying to uh, get as many of those people in informant or agent positions as possible. Um, so I, I just certainly don't believe th that this story is at face value, that, uh, like we're expected to believe that it's hacktivists doing this for the good of humanity. Could it be in uh, private intelligence firms doing this um, to justify their own budgets? Absolutely, it could be. Um, again, there's a lot of other speculation we could throw in there, but uh, but I think that would certainly be a plausible way of looking at it. Well, and of course, that poses the question of how many of these hacktivists have been approached by private intelligence corporations. Does anyone really ask them that question? That's You're a very good question, actually. In fact, I've I've never seen any reporting along those lines. So I, I wonder if any of the listeners have any leads on that. That would be a very interesting thing to, to think about, because, again, I'm sure. Well, I, but then again, uh, there would be a lot more appeal, I think, to saying, you know, I'm from the FBI and you can help out the country than than saying, hey, I'm from Booz Allen and, you know, we can make some money. <laughs> but then again, I, I suppose that would be an appeal for a lot of people. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I, think I think it depends on who you're approaching. That's kind of what, yeah, I'm, what I'm driving at. You could get different people different ways. Um, yeah, very true. And could we even conceive of a situation? I mean, I am getting very speculative here, but could we even conceive of a situation whereby the CIA subcontracted the uh, acquiring of informants within the hacktivist community to a private intelligence company? And again, I think that might be one of those kind of layers of plausible deniability that they might might want to act to that. No, the CIA never had any involvement with recruiting these people. Yeah, it was it was all this firm. And then uh, somehow or other, you know, this was all an operation that was done under the table with no documentation to prove it. So you can never trace it back to the CIA. I, again, I think that's uh, that's more than more likely than not how these types of operations would work if they are being used, uh, th if they are being con conduited through the private sector. And I think that's, again probably uh, one of the, the primary reasons for using a lot of this private intelligence is, again, to get that layer, that buffer layer between the people who are making the decisions and the people who are carrying it out. Um, as always, I mean, plausible deniability is always, I think, one of the key concerns for a lot of uh, intelligence agencies and, and people in, in positions of operational power. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Well, to shift gears a little bit, we uh, don't have a huge amount of time left, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about a bit of spy fiction, since it is one of my many obsessions. And I will point people to the fact that 
certainly in the 1960s, there was this flurry of television shows like uh, Mission Impossible and The Man from Uncle and Get Smart that were almost, they were portraying spy stories, but these were almost always private organizations and private corporations that were doing these spy operations or black ops or whatever. Um, and I, I've always been fascinated by that because in film, it's somewhat different. Film and TV are quite divergent in that period in how they portrayed intelligence agencies and the whole world of spying. And then, of course, after these kind of relatively light-hearted, fun-filled shows of the 60s, you out, one of the outgrowths of that was the American conspiracy thriller film, which uh, in the 1970s, you got some of the very, very best American cinema was done in that, that sort of genre. And that also, of course, grew out of film noir. And in film noir, you have a almost ubiquitous private detective character that appears in almost every story in that. So all of these things are portraits of the exact sort of world that, that we're talking about and to some extent speculating about today. But rather than ask your opinion on all of that, because I'm sure you haven't seen most of these shows because you haven't even seen the X-Files. So um, the question I did want to ask you is, do you see yourself as some kind of, if you like, private detective, a private investigator, or a private intelligence agent, if I could call it that. Wow, that was that was some bold jujitsu move you just pulled there. That's a <laughs> that's a very interesting way of framing that, and I've never really thought of it in that way. Um, as I was saying earlier, the appeal of a lot of this, uh, the appeal that intelligence agencies have of, to a lot of people is the idea of, you know, getting getting you on the inside. You can you can learn the the secrets of how this all works. You can be smarter than the the rest of the population. And it's often been said, I think, about the the kind of the 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 alternative media, the truth movement, the way that this has been framed by a lot of people is is it, it exactly in those terms. If you come to this this movement, the truth movement, you will learn the truth. You will be an insider. You will be smarter than this sheeple, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's often framed in that way, and uh, and I think that there is some sort of parallel there that people perhaps do fancy themselves some type of James Bond putting this all together, and to a certain extent, what. Looking at operations like a 9-11 or a 7-7, etc., what that does to the person who is looking at them is to ask them to place themselves in the position of one of these intelligence uh, operatives. If you were someone who was on the inside of an operation like this, if you were going to do it, how would you do it? Would you do this? Would you do that? So it does kind of invite that type of... Um, I don't want to say it's, it's not role playing, um, but it is at least trying to identify with that mindset, which to a certain extent draws you into the mindset. So I think it is it, that isn't something that I'm I'm always 100 percent conscious of, but I think it must reside there to a certain extent to anyone who's interested in these subjects. I mean, the fact that, for example, you are so uh, completely obsessed with the intelligence agencies shows that at some level, I think that the, the at least the idea of the mindset of the intelligence uh, agencies and the agents who, who are operatives in them must appeal to to sort of your way of thinking. There must be something about that 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 sort of is is appealing, not so far, not necessarily that you want to, to be it or to join it, but at any rate, you're fascinated by it. And I think that that has to exist for people who are who do spend their time looking at things like this. So, uh, I, I mean, I don't I certainly don't see myself as some sort of, you know, James Bond or, or private detective or what have you. But I guess there are enough parallels there that it does at least make me uneasy because, again, I, I, I identify that as 
the enemy, I suppose, in this in this framework. Um, can it be used for good? I guess it certainly can, but I don't generally see it happening that way in real life, which is why I'm hesitant to identify myself um, in that role. I'm not sure what the alternative way of framing that would be, though. Um, uh, I suppose, I, again, as an open source citizen investigative uh, type person, I mean, that's that's kind of the alternative um, paradigm that we could be operating in, as opposed to this secretive work of shadowy figures behind the scenes trying to deceive people. I, I guess opposed to that, you could frame the, the kind of open source investigative collaborative uh, uh, researcher who's trying to bring this stuff to light. Um, I would like to believe that it was that simple a dichotomy. Um, I don't think it probably is, but at any rate, it, that's that's perhaps the framework that we could aspire towards um, as a way of trying to undermine the work that these people are doing and trying to sow the seeds of deception. Well, yeah, and, and this uh, brings me on to the final little thing that I wanted to kind of bring up with you. I think a lot of the problems that uh we're, we're discussing in this whole question of private intelligence a lot of it boils down to the conception the conceiving of information as itself being a, a commodity something that can be traded something that can you know has some kind of commodity value in that sense and i don't think information really is like that do you do you conceive of information as a commodity and assuming that you don't uh what should information be conceived of as yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. And of course, I agree that, for example, I mean, I've talked about intellectual property before and the idea that that is a complete fiction that we should not um, cave into it. It's it's a ridiculous idea when you start to examine it philosophically. But um, but on another level of analysis, I guess if you look at information, if you look at a commodity as anything that people are willing to trade and, and find valuable and are interested in, obviously information can, can fall into that quite easily. And that's why whether we like it or not, information is a commodity right now. It is certainly being um, gathered, collected, stored and used as as a saleable good. And it's funny that you should bring this up because actually um, I've just finished writing my uh, international forecaster editorial for this weekend which is all about this, the sale of, of data, basically people's private data and the data broker industry that's sprung up in, in recent years to take advantage of this and, uh, and all of the corporations that are, that are hungry for every last bit of personal detail they can get about you. And, uh, and it, it just strikes me just how cavalier we are at this point about our private data, including even such things as, you know, our, our likes and dislikes or, or what we purchased uh, yesterday or what we ate for breakfast. All of this is actual data points that can have very real um, economic value to a lot of people who are willing to purchase that information. So, again, whether we like it or not, I think there, the information is a commodity. It is being used and, and, and collected and gathered and sold as such. So I think we have to at least be aware of that and be... Um, uh, again, at least conscious of the process of of the 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 collection of this information and trying not to put ourselves um, uh, basically into that meat grinder voluntarily. Um, there's a lot I, th I guess we could say about that. I don't want to wander too far afield, but ultimately, I, I agree that that information should not be seen as 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 something pursuable for for economic interest, but it is, and that's I think just the reality on the ground. Well, okay, fair enough. But I would also add that the reality on the ground, on a somewhat smaller scale, is what you're doing, and to a certain extent what I'm doing. And 
what the people we met in Lille are doing. The whole open source community doesn't treat information as the commodity, not in the same way as certainly uh, corporate media and corporate intelligence treat information as a commodity. They rather treat the, at least in the media realm, let's stick to that because that's the one we actually know about. I don't want to start talking about software. Um, I think in the media realm, in the open source parts of the alternative media, it's actually the research, the analysis, the commentary, the presentation. They're the commodity. They're the things that people are actually finding valuable. To my mind, the information in that uh, particular area is more like the currency if you like, the means of exchange that allow people to trade commodities of real value. Would you, would you agree with that distinction? I, I certainly would. And I think I get what you're getting at here, which is the fact that, uh, that basically what we're looking at is finally, I think, the, the, the divergence of, of raw data from the analysis of that data, which has always been combined in the journalistic function and which has always been the role of newspapers and televisions, et cetera, for, for you know, decades, centuries, if you want to go far enough back. That it's always been a combined thing to present the data and to present the contextualization of that data. And I think we're starting to see the, the divergence of that with the technologies that we have now. Um, and just as one trivial example of that, you know, the, the new app that you can download that will um, alert you every time there's a drone strike anywhere in the world um, uh, how many people were killed and, and the context of, you know, that data. And, and then it's up to other people to take that raw data and then to interpret it in some way. And obviously the value add is in the people who are doing that interpretation, who are connecting the dots, who are forming a narrative out of this. And, uh, and the data itself is, is relatively almost worthless. I mean, there's a lot of data that we can get for free at this point because it is just so abundant and so easy to, to, uh, to transmit. And, and people are more and more expecting, I think, that data is, is freely available in that sense. So, um, so, and, and I think that still uh, uh, there are people who, who see the value that's added by commentary and by presentation and by narrative and are willing to to pay for that. So I think you're right. There is kind of a divergence that's happening right now between the raw information and processed or refined information, I suppose. And uh, and in that sense, absolutely, I think we're starting to see that that quickening. And and to a certain extent, that's why I think that a lot of the dinosaur media outlets are dying is because they do such a poor job of contextualizing the data that they report. Yes, well, I'd certainly uh, agree with you on that much. Um... Well, James, I mean, we've been speaking for an hour. Is there anything you just want to add before we wrap things up? I uh, I don't think so. I had a lot of different notes for today's conversation. We went in a lot of different directions, but I like that. I think that there is a lot to talk about, and I, I'm sorry if I wasn't able to connect dots as well as they're connected in my mind. But at any rate, I think this is an exceptionally important part of the whole analysis of, of spy culture, especially as we proceed into the 21st century. And again, the cyber warfare and all of this starts to come to the f forefront. I think we're going to see more and more of this and more and more of these companies are, are going to be in control of a lot of these intelligence operations, whether or not they actually are in the spotlight. I think there's going to be more um, sort of emphasis on, on their actions 
So I think it is definitely something that people who are interested in this as a type of open source endeavor of looking at spy agencies should be um, at least aware of and hopefully um, digging up more dirt than is digged up, dug up <laughs> by the uh, the mainstream, uh, the inside the beltway type uh, Dana Priests and William Arkins of the world, or even the pseudo alternative, the foundation funded um, alternative who will only ever tell you that what we need is better intelligence and we need better drone strikes that kill the right terrorists and we need the war on terror to be done the right way by government agencies, not private firms. Um, I think we can do better than that. And I know that there are a lot of very smart, very switched on people in your audience who are dedicated to this as well. So hopefully, again, we can combine our efforts and uh, and do a little more to uh, to dig up some of the dirt that they don't want to bring to light. Well, I think you've summed that up very, very well. And that is a lesson that I hope people do take to heart because it isn't anywhere near as hard as you might think it is to do this as long as you're willing to actually commit to doing it, as long as you're going to commit to digging up dirt on people, sooner or later, you, you'll break through and you'll find a way of finding the sorts of information that you're looking for, because it's truly amazing what's out there if only you bother to look. But anyway, James, I mean, thank you so much for your time today. You have This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed this. This was everything that I wanted it to be and hoped it would be. So thank you Thanks for coming on Clandestine. Thanks for coming on the show. And do you just want to quickly throw out your website? It is CorbettReport.com. It's the one-stop shop for everything that I do. And uh, thank you for having me on. If I have lived up to your expectations, that is a mighty high bar indeed. So I can only humbly accept your, your kind feedback. So there he goes. That is the one and only James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I think we'll polish things off there for this week. As always, you've been listening to Clandestine, and I am Tom Secker of SpyCulture.com and InvestigatingTheTerror.com. So thank you for listening, take care, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. There's a captain.